welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, January 9th, 2022. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Joe grew up on the big island of Hawaii, the daughter of a Japanese-American mother. Her grandmother had been a picture bride from Japan. Her grandfather worked on the sugar plantation. She grew up relatively happy, probably like most girls her age. And as she got older, she'd often spend summers with her favorite auntie on the island of Oahu. She loved spending time with Auntie Janet. They talked quite a bit, and Joe often felt more free to open up with her auntie than she did even with her own mom. And then one day when she was 15 years old, she learned a family secret that completely shattered her teenage world. Her mom was not her birth mom. Her favorite auntie actually was. You see, in the 1960s, Auntie Janet fell in love with American soldiers stationed in Hawaii, and when she found out she was pregnant, there was talk about getting married. But when Janet's best friend, who was also dating a GI, told her parents about their relationship, that girl's mother took her own life out of shame. Janet couldn't risk that happening to her own family, so she turned down the soldier's offer for marriage, and they ended their relationship. Janet's older sister, Tamai, was married already, and so she agreed to adopt baby Joe once she was born. And for the first 15 years of her life, Joe was unaware that Auntie Janet was her birth mom and that Tamai was actually her blood auntie. I got to meet Tamai and Auntie Janet. In fact, they both came to our wedding because my wife Jody is their granddaughter and Joe is Joanne, my mother-in-law. Welcome to a standalone sermon entitled Telling Secrets. And rest assured, my mother-in-law gave me permission to share her story today In fact, it's one of the worst-kept secrets in her family. Everyone knew it except Joanne's half-brother, who thought they were simply cousins. Auntie Janet, to her dying day, refused to tell her son the truth about his actual relationship with Joanne for who knows why. But that secret in Joanne's family shaped and molded who she was, especially as a teenager and a young adult. This sermon title comes from a powerful book by one of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, entitled Telling Secrets. Now, I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface of this, uh, the wealth of insight and wisdom that's in your book. So if it uh, piques your interest and intrigues you or maybe touches your heart, I invite you to uh, get a copy and read it on your own. It's a very short book. E.M. Forster, author of such classics as Howard's End, Passage to India, and A Room with a View, once said, a story is a, a narrative of events arranged chronologically, as in the king died and then the queen died. Whereas a plot, although it also is a narrative of events, concentrates more on the because of things, as in the king died and then the queen died because of deep grief. Beekner says that although he'd written about his life before, it was more like the narrative of events arranged chronologically. Telling secrets, though, would have much more of a plot in it. 
looking at the because of things. And I was so inspired. I read this many, many years ago, and then I just reread it this past week in preparing for this message. And I felt like this was a message for all of us, that all of us, especially as we start a new year, needed to hear this. So today we're going to hear a series of six short stories, one of which we've already heard. And when we're done this morning, it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit will have nudged each of our hearts in life-giving and healing ways. In his introduction, Beekner says that he's come to believe that, by and large, the human family all has the same secrets, which are both very telling and very important to tell. He writes, they are telling in the sense that they tell what is perhaps the central paradox of our condition, that what we hunger for, perhaps more than anything else, is to be known in our full humanness. And that that is often just what we also fear more than anything else. Buechner says it's important to tell, at least from time to time, the, the secret of who we truly and fully are, even if we only tell it to ourselves. Because otherwise, we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are, and little by little come to accept the uh, highly edited version that we show the rest of the world in hopes that the world will find that more acceptable than the real thing. Telling our secrets makes it easy to see where we've been in our lives and where we're going. It also makes it easier for other people to tell us a secret or two of their own, because isn't that what being a family and being human is really all about? Finally, he writes, I suspect that it is by entering that deep place inside us where our secrets are kept that we come perhaps closer than we do anywhere else to the one who, whether we realize it or not, is of all our secrets the most telling and the most precious that we have to tell. So as your pastor, I invite each of us, myself included, into this experience and ask, are we ready and willing to enter into telling our secrets? Story number two is from Frederick himself. Here is the opening paragraphs of his book. One November morning in 1936, when I was 10 years old, my father got up early, put on a pair of gray slacks and a maroon sweater, opened the door to look in briefly on my younger brother and me, and who were playing a game in our room, and then went down into the garage where he turned on the engine of the family Chevy and sat down on the running board to wait for the exhaust to kill him. Except for a memorial service for his Princeton class the next spring, by which time we had moved away to another part of the world altogether, there was no funeral. Because on my mother's side and my father's, there was no church connection of any kind, and funerals were simply not part of their traditions. He was cremated and his ashes buried in a cemetery in Brooklyn, and I have no idea who, if anybody, was present. I only know that my mother, brother, and I were not. There was no funeral to mark his death and put a period at the end of that sentence that had been his life. And as far as I can remember, once he had died, my mother, brother, and I rarely talked about him much ever again, either to each other or to anybody else. It made my mother too sad to talk about him. Since there was already more than enough sadness to go around, my brother and I avoided the subject with her as 
she avoided it for her own reasons also with us. We didn't talk about my father with each other. We didn't talk about him outside the family either, partly at least because suicide was looked on as something a little shabby and shameful in those days. Nice people weren't supposed to get mixed up with it. My father had tried to keep it a secret uh, himself by leaving his note to my mother in a place where only she would be likely to find it. And by saying a number of times the last few weeks of his life that there was something wrong with the Chevy's exhaust system, which he was going to see if he could fix. He did this partly in hopes that his life insurance wouldn't be invalidated, which of course it was, and partly too, I guess, in hopes that his friends wouldn't find out how he died, which of course they did. His suicide was a secret we nonetheless tried to keep as best we could, and after a while, my father himself became such a secret. There were times when he almost seemed a secret that we were trying to keep from each other. And because words are so much a part of what we keep the past alive by, if only words to ourselves, by not speaking of what we remembered about him, we soon simply stopped remembering him at all. Or at least I did. Because none of the three of us ever talked about how we had felt about him when he was alive or how we felt about him now that he wasn't, those feelings soon disappeared too and went underground along with the memories. And then he says, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel is supposed to be the unwritten law of families that for one reason or another have gone out of whack. And certainly it was our law. We never talked about what had happened. We didn't trust the world with our secret, hardly even trusted each other with it. Can anyone else relate to that unwritten law of families? I mean, why is it that we humans are hesitant to tell our secrets? And I'm not talking about, you know, posting them out on social media for the whole world to read, but, but for some of us, some of our deepest experience in our lives, we've never told another person outside those who are a part of it with us. Why is that? Shame? Embarrassment? Thinking others can't relate? Worried that others might think less of us if they found out? Frederick Buechner follows up his father's suicide story with a second story, that of his own daughter and her dealing with anorexia nervosa. Published in 1991, Telling Secrets was written at a time when eating disorders were only really starting to be talked about in public. Beekner writes that there was absolutely nothing he could do to make this person, his daughter, that he loved so much, eat normally again. In fact, everything he tried just seemed to strengthen her resolve not to. I could not solve her problem because I was, of course, myself part of her problem, he writes. I will not try to tell my daughter's story for two reasons. One, it is not mine to tell, but hers. The other is that, of course, I do not know her story, not the real story, the inside story for what it was like for her. For some reason, I, I will not, for the same reason, I will not try to tell what it was like for my wife or for our other two children, each of whom in her own way was also involved in the story. I can only tell my part in it, what happened to me, and, and even there, I still can't be sure I have it right because in many ways, it's happening still. And I want to pause for just a moment to say how wise 
that actually is. Really, we only have our own stories, the ways that each one of us have experienced what's happened in our lives. And we don't even fully know how others have experienced the various events, even when we've had a part to play in them, unless they've told us. Beekner continues, my anorexic daughter was in danger of starving to death, and without knowing it, so was I. I knew nothing at all about what I was doing to myself. She had given up food. I had virtually given up doing anything in the way of feeding myself humanly. To be at peace is to have peace inside yourself, more or less in spite of what is going on outside yourself. In that sense, I had no peace at all. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. And Frederick noted there's a flip side to that coin, and that was the fear like he had actually casted out love, even, in his opinion, God's love. He writes, The love I had for my daughter was lost in the anxiety I had for my daughter. The only way I knew to be a father was to take care of her as my father had been unable to take care of me. To move heaven and earth if necessary to make her well, and of course, I couldn't do that. I didn't have either the wisdom or the power to make her well. None of us has the power to change other human beings like that, and it would be a terrible power if we did, the power to violate the humanity of others, even if for their own good. In the end, it took a court order to force their daughter into being hospitalized against her will. The combination of doctors and nurses, social workers, and a judge were able to do what Frederick and his wife could not. And after a lengthy hospitalization and rehabilitation, including a powerful 12-step group that she was a part of, his daughter was able to make a remarkable recovery to wholeness. Praise God. You may have heard me say this before, but I am not a believer in the saying that everything happens for a reason. I think that things happen because of the choices that people make, either the choices that you make or I make or others around us, some of whom we have a relationship with, others of whom we may never see, some we may only meet when their choices interact with our lives. No. I I do not believe that everything happens for a reason, but I do believe that God can bring good out of any given situation, even the worst experiences we may encounter. Some of you have also heard me talk about my own mother's death. Uh, We can count this as story number four if you're keeping track at home. She was killed by a drunk driver while driving her Volkswagen Bug when I was only six and a half years old. She was driving by herself. I don't believe that it was God's will that she be killed that day, and looking back over the years, I can see a number of instances of good that God helped bring about, even in the aftermath of that tragic event. First and foremost, my father remarried, and I had the blessing of being raised by a wonderful stepmom that we just called mom uh, for many, many decades of my life. Second, it was at a very early age that I came to see the church at its best, and how our home church of First Baptist Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, enveloped their arms around us, took us in like a mother hen, taking care of her chicks under her wing. 
And that was part of what led me to be a pastor 28 years ago. I I wanted to help others experience that same kind of transforming love that the church had had for me and my family after my mom's death. So where is God when experiences like car accidents and suicides and eating disorders happen to our lives? I love what Frederick Buechner had to say about that. He writes, God acts in history, and in your and my brief histories, not as a puppeteer who sets the scene and works the strings, but rather as the great director who, no matter what role fate casts us in, conveys to us somehow from the wings, if we have our eyes and ears and hearts open, and sometimes even if we don't, how we can play these roles in a way to enrich and ennoble and hallow the whole vast drama of things, including our own small but crucial parts in it. He is so eloquent in his writing. Story number five comes from our Bible reading for today, from the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 12. The story of Abraham and Sarah, even though at this point in the story they're simply Abram and Sarai, we pick up at verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. So a little backstory might be helpful here. We first meet Abram a few verses back at the end of chapter 11. God has called him at the ripe young age of 75 and his wife Sarai to leave their homeland, to go into a land that he will tell them to and become parents of a great nation. Oh yeah, and they're childless at this time, 65 and 75 years old respectively. So it's kind of a big ask by God, don't you think? But they go with it. Well, famine strikes. They decide to venture down into Egypt for the time being. Why Egypt? Well, with the luxury of the Nile River, Egypt was known as the breadbasket of the ancient Near East. And when famine and drought hit the region, which it did quite often, Egypt was often spared from the worst of it. So, fresh off their mountaintop experience of being called by God himself into this amazing new relationship, Abraham decides to forget the promise that God has given them and go into self-preservation mode. I mean, when they see that you're my smoking hot wife, they'll likely kill me. So let's just say we're brother and sister, all right? Will you do that for me, babe? It's a great, great plan, Abram. I'm sure you really thought that one through, didn't you, right? Well, it turns out that things actually happen exactly the way that Abram thought they would, and Sarai was um, chosen to be a part of Pharaoh's harem. As compensation, Abram was given a ton of livestock, which I guess he thought was better than having a wife. But you know, God wasn't actually too keen about this whole plan of Abram's. Verse 17 But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, "Uh, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. 
Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on his way with his wife and all that he had. Abram, thinking only about himself, evidently giving no consideration to how being traded into sexual slavery would impact his beloved bride. And although you might say all's well that ends well, the story, well, it kind of leaves a bitter taste in your mouth, doesn't it? Abram went into Egypt with a secret. And it took God spilling the beans, so to speak, to bring justice to sweet Sarai. Abram's lie brought a plague of God down upon an innocent man. Now, it's not the last story of Abraham's life, uh, not by a long shot, but it's a reminder that even the best of us, even the father of the promise, well, we all have kind of a mix of stories in our history, don't we? Story number six comes from a letter that I received from someone I had pastored over the course of my 27 years of ministry. Now, she's forgiven me uh, permission to share this, but only if I change her name. So I'm calling this Sue's story. It was a three-page handwritten letter front and back, and through the immaculate cursive penmanship, I could hear the heartbreak. Pastors are often privy to information that the rest of the congregation is not, but let me just say point blank, I had no idea when I was her pastor that this woman was going through all of the things she was going through. I'm writing because of all the unsaid things that have held me back and still hold me back, she wrote in her second paragraph. I need someone to know. It's not for understanding or sympathy, but just to make the truth known to one other person. So, this is her telling secrets story. She started by sharing an incident when her son was two years old and had been inadvertently scalded by her new boyfriend who had put him in the bathwater without testing it first. Not an uncommon mistake, especially for someone unfamiliar with children, but Sue blamed herself. Because of that, she gave custody of her son to her ex, which as it turns out, was a colossal mistake. He actually put their son in a foster home and told her he was in daycare. When she eventually found out, the foster family testified on her behalf and she was able to get her son back. She writes, I stayed with my new boyfriend as I was raised to believe that I was a scatterbrained female who had to rely on a man. They eventually married and moved into a new location. They even had a child together, so now there were two children in this family. Sue started working for a local school district and felt good being able to contribute to the family income. I asked very little of my husband, she says, because I trusted him to provide for the family. Well, over time, a pattern emerged where Sue had to handle basically every part of the household while her husband spent time on his computer. Every part, that is, except uh, the four to five mortgages that she didn't know her husband had taken out on the house that they owned together. Quote, I know now that they were to pay his credit card debt, and the house was underwater after 34 years of ownership. The final straw, she said, was when the house was foreclosed on by the bank. Supposedly, her husband had been working with a tax relief company, evidently not a very reputable one, 
And it was at this point that Sue discovered that they owed $50,000 to the IRS in back taxes. Prayerfully, she decided it was best for her to end their marriage, and after getting a settlement from a work-related injury, Sue was able to move away from her husband. The pain just jumped off the pages of the letter. She wrote, I am angry and tired. I wonder how I could have been so foolish and filled with such self-hatred. Why would I allow myself to accept a life like this? There were many signs and conversations over the years about saving for the future. I, I just trusted a very damaged person because I couldn't imagine a husband doing this to a family. I can only conclude that we were a facade of respectability, a means to an end. He did as he pleased, and we made him look good. In the end of the letter, Sue finishes with this. Please, just advise young couples to promise on everything that they hold dear, to meet every month, to confide and reveal all financial plans and realities. They need to truly co-parent as they will only regret years of missed opportunities if they don't. You may use this info, Pastor Jim, if or whenever you determine it to be useful. Anonymous, please, because I am so ashamed. I've kept this letter and never had an opportunity to use it in a sermon until today. Telling secrets. I need someone to know it's not for sympathy or understanding, but just to make the truth known to one other person. Frederick Buechner had an insight that I found extremely poignant and so helpful. He says this. I'm inclined to believe that God's chief purpose in giving us memories is to enable us to go back in time so that if we didn't play these roles right the first time around, we can still have another go at it now. We cannot undo our old mistakes or, or their consequences any more than we can erase old wounds that we have both suffered and inflicted. But through the power that memory gives us of thinking, feeling, imagining our way back through time, we can at long last finally finish with the past in the sense of removing its power to hurt us and other people and to stunt our growth as human beings. Even the saddest things can become, once we have made peace with them, a source of wisdom and strength for the journey that still lies ahead. Another way of saying this, perhaps, is that memory makes it possible for us both to bless the past, even those parts of it that we have always felt cursed by, and also to be blessed by it. Wasn't that powerful? The, to see memory as God's gift to help us finish with the past in the sense of removing its power to hurt us. Wouldn't you like to bless some of your past? To bless even those parts that have hurt you in the past and to be able to receive a blessing from it? That's what Sue was trying to do when she wrote to me. That's what Frederick Beekner was trying to do in Telling Secrets. He writes, 
to see how God's mercy was for me buried deep even in my father's death was not just to be able to forgive my father for dying and God for letting him die so young and without hope and all the people like my mother who were involved in his death, but also to be able to forgive myself for all the years I had failed to air my crippling secret so that then, however slowly and uncertainly, I could start to find healing. It's also what Joanne was trying to do when Jody was in junior high. God started whispering into my mother-in-law's ear that she needed to return to Hawaii after having gotten married, moved to the mainland, and raised three children. But she had made her husband John promise to never bring her back to Hawaii. At the same time, God started whispering into my father-in-law's ear, telling him it was time to go back to Hawaii, but he had promised God that he had promised his wife that he would never take her back to that place where she felt betrayed and hurt, both by her birth mom and her aunt. When they finally shared with each other what God had been saying to each of them, they knew, despite their reluctance, they needed to go back home. Not only were they able able to return to Hawaii, but also able to reconcile both with Janet and Tamai before both of them died. Our secrets are human secrets, says Frederick Buechner, and our trusting each other enough to share them with each other has much to do with the secret of what it is to be human. You know, when Jesus uh, was asked long ago... Out of the 613 or 19 commandments that there are in the Hebrew Scriptures, what's the most important? And Jesus said, well, there's two. One, love God with everything you have. The second is right up there, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. And when we hear this Scripture passage, we often hear it in the context of being commended to care for our neighbors, right? Especially those who don't look like us, think like us, talk like us, or... God forbid, vote like us. But you know, when it comes to telling secrets, maybe to love our neighbor as ourselves actually means we have to love ourselves. We have to give ourselves the same compassion and grace that we give to our our friends when they're hurting or lost or down. Near the end of his book, Beekner speaks about the power of 12-step groups, not, not just the one that helped his daughter come out of her anorexia, but also the one that he joined for adult children of alcoholics and helped him come to embrace his past. He said, you know, I think the church has a lot to learn from 12-step groups. They're often closer to what Jesus meant the church to be than what goes on in most churches. He says... They have no preachers or choirs, no liturgy, no real estate. They have no creeds. They have no program. They make you wonder if the best thing that could happen to many a church might not be to have its building burn down and to lose all its money. Then all that the people would have left would be God and each other. Hmm. You know, in reality, that's what made the Methodist church so powerful back in the day. We were excellent at telling secrets with one another. In fact, 
Early Methodists had small groups known as class meetings. They would encourage one another, pray for one another. They would help each one another live into all that God wanted for them. And somewhere along the way, we Methodists forgot that that was such a part of our core identity. And we became comfortable with simply coming to worship on Sunday mornings. Pastor John and I are excited to announce the start of life groups here at Palmdale United Methodist Church. If you open up the church app, you'll be able to read about them and what we're going to be doing uh, with them and through them together over the next year. Life groups will meet once a month beginning in February. These small groups will gather to share what's been happening in their lives each week to study a very short passage of scripture and to pray for one another. Life groups can meet in person or online or a combination of both. You can organize your own life group with groups of friends that you feel comfortable with. Or you can ask to be put in a group uh, that randomly is selected. Pastor Pastor John and I will give every group a monthly outline and discussion question. So all you have to do is show up and start telling your secrets. Well, you, you don't necessarily have to tell your secrets. Just... Share who you are once a month for 11 months. You can sign up for life uh, groups right on the church app. You can call the church office if that would be easier for you. Just 11 meetings once a month for 2022. Don't miss this opportunity to get to the roots of who we are as Methodists and quite possibly rediscover who you are as a human being. So there you have it, six stories. Hopefully you will be able to hear some of your own story in each of them, maybe not in the specifics of what was shared, but in the generalities of what they were experiencing. In fact, that's actually what's next. Whether you choose to join us in our life groups this year or go in a different direction, I hope and pray that you'll spend some time telling secrets, even if it's only to yourself and God. For God can take the pain and struggles of our past, and God can uh, help those to no longer hurt us and others, to no longer stunt our development as Christians and as humans if we let God. May each of us find opportunities to share our secrets, our stories. May we, along the way, discover our deepest and truest humanity, for God created each of us in God's image, and God called us good. Even you. Even me. Amen.